the bishop of our diocese, in case you don't know it, is a woman named Mary Ann Buddy. And Bishop Buddy is, uh, writes a blog every week, and I would suggest to you, if you're not getting it, that you go to the diocesan website, the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, and sign up for it, because she has a very good blog that appears every week. I read it every week, look forward to reading it every week. And this week, of course, I went and looked forward to reading what she had to say when she wrote on November the 9th, I think, or maybe November the 10th. And this is what she wrote at the, after our election today. About after our election, not today, Tuesday. She says, we knew beforehand that whatever the election's outcome, half the country would feel exiled in their own land. Indeed, one lesson of this long election season is how profound that feeling of exile has been for many Americans. Perhaps exile is our common experience. On November the 9th, day after the election, Tom Friedman of the New York Times wrote a column entitled, Homeless in America. And he's writing Homeless in America, said there's nothing that can make people more angry or disoriented, that feeling that they have lost their home. For some of them, it is because, and he goes on through the list of things that may have made people feel like they were homeless in America. For some other people, the reasons why they may feel homeless in America, and he says, so it's not surprising that people feel so disoriented in our society. When I read both of those, com those, uh, those commentary, I was reminded of a long time ago, I took a class from Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament theologian, took it at Union Theological Seminary, a summer class, and it was on the book of the prophet Jeremiah. As you well know, the prophet Jeremiah was the uh, prophet of the exile, of people being sent into exile. And the one thing I remember of Walter Brueggemann saying one day in that class was this, that he described the exile of Scripture, and he said, metaphorically speaking, exile is the loss of the known world. Exile is the loss of the known world. We all know about it. We all experience the loss of the known world. It's almost on a daily basis that we experience the loss of the known world. And for many of us in our society, as our bishop said, we have that experience of the loss of the known world, regardless of where you are, on the political aisles. This sense of uh, exile or homelessness in our society exists on both sides of the political aisle. And you and I both know that it has been building up for some time. It didn't just happen November the 9th, 2016. Let me tell you a couple of stories about my own experience. I came to Washington DC to be the rector of this church in 1994, and my first experience of inauguration took place in 1997, after Bill Clinton had won his second, uh, the second time, uh, his second election. And what I remember was that I, you know, I'm, I love Americana. I mean, I love parades. I love all those things about parades. So I took my hike over there to Pennsylvania Avenue so I could see people throwing up batons and hope that they caught it coming back. The high school bands that can't play very well, but I love watching them. Everybody marching down the streets, everything else. I love things Americana. Now, one of the things that I remember from that day standing on Pennsylvania Avenue was that there were people there who were holding up signs that said, he is not my president. Fast forward, 2005, President Bush, number 43, invited me to offer the opening prayer at his second inauguration. Now, there were a couple of great things about being able to do that, at least on a personal basis. One of them... Uh, well, the first one is you get to stand up in thousands upon thousands of people, and you're really having a temptation to go, like the Pope, my people. <laughs> but my wife, Lou, said, resist that temptation and don't do it. 
The second great thing about it is that I got to ride in one of those wonderful big black cars that officials drive around in Washington. I didn't get to drive, but they brought me back to the reviewing stand. And while I was driving back through the reviewing stand, there were people, the signs littering uh, by the sides of the street, all of them saying, he is not my president. Fast forward to President Obama's second inauguration, and he had invited me to do the closing prayer, the blessing at the end of his inauguration. Again, I got to ride in that big black car, resist the temptation of calling it my people, and riding in that black, big black car, coming back to the reviewing stand, there were signs all down Pennsylvania Avenue that said, he is not my president. One of the things that I thought as I saw those signs was, that's delusional. But the way we play the game of election here in the United States, they were the president of the United States. And you know where I'm going from here. You're a smart people. We don't have to wait until January the 20th or whatever day it happens to be to see those signs already scattered around American society. They are already out. In that same column of November the 9th, Mr. Friedman quotes from an immigrant friend from Zimbabwe. And that friend of his said to him, you Americans kick around your country like it's a football. But it is not a football. It is a Faberge egg. And you can break it. The intense polarization of our era has turned the political marketplace into a very toxic battleground where political leaders who express different, differing opinions are transformed into enemies. I'll be very frank with you. I'm not sure if we haven't stepped over the border. I like to think that we have not stepped over the border on that line of breaking the Faberge egg, but we very well may have. But it doesn't mean that we can't give up, that we can give up in claiming ourselves as a nation. There are two things that I can give you by observation that perhaps we've stepped one step too far. Immediately after the election on November the 9th and then on November the 10th, I got an email on November the 9th from somebody, a, a friend, who some said to me, if the president-elect chooses to have a pre-inaugural service at St. John's Church, make sure that you don't have it. And then a long list of all of the deplorable language about not having them. My response to him is the same response that I give to everybody. We have a sign outside that says the Episcopal Church welcomes you. And then we don't have a long list below it of the people who are excluded from that. So we are a church that is open to whomever chooses to come and worship with us. The next one, of course, is the opposite side of it. Someone between the services told me to go check my email because Bishop Buddy had sent an email out about our Savior, the Church of Our Savior in Hillendale, that, like us, has a 1 o'clock service in Spanish, and said that the sign for that 1 o'clock service had been defaced last night. And it was defaced, with this, and what was scrawled on it was this, Trump Nation, whites only. I'm not sure if we've stepped over the line. I don't know what has happened to us, but we have some work to do, a lot of work to do. And the first place to begin to see what I think God hopes for us is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the reading that we had today. The very end of it, it says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now remember, this is poetic language. This is not an office memo, and it is not prose. 
So you have to read it with the imagination, the, the throttle of your imagination wide open as we read all poetry, thinking broadly about what is the prophet Isaiah inviting us to consider. And I would like to think, invite you to think that in the, the prophet Isaiah is inviting us to think uh, in, in a sense, an apocalyptic term of what God thinks the city of God can be, the ultimate city of God, what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And I would suggest to you that God holds before us an image of something greater than ourselves, inviting us to see how the wolf can lie with the lamb, the lion can eat with the ox, and nobody, but nobody except everybody lives in peace. And I like that image. It's inviting us to think of something greater than ourselves and inviting us for something greater than what we are. I don't know about you, but like many American Christians, I long for this sort of apocalyptic image of peace to take root in our politics. The public square has always been a marketplace of clashing ideas, the arena of competing value systems and the policies that grow out of them. But given our caustic political life, is Isaiah's vision of a peaceful public square and naive hope? I like to think not. I hope not. I hope that we can repair ourselves and that that Faberge egg has not cracked. And in order for that to happen, we need to be thinking about what's our role in the healing of our nation. There's a friend of mine who's a pastor of a church in Wisconsin Madison, Wisconsin, and we've exchanged some emails along the way of this past week, and he told me about the experience they had in Wisconsin in 2011 when there was a huge political fight between the governor of the state and the unions, et cetera, et cetera, and he said all of that spilled into the life of the congregation so that people who were gathered in one congregation, as he wrote to me, parishioners of different political persuasions were no longer on speaking terms. Friends were turned into enemies. He said that the religious leaders of Wisconsin back in those days called for a season of civility. And the goal was to equip people of faith to exhibit an alternative future, something different from the demonization that they were embroiled in. Was it possible to bring people of different political persuasions together in congregations to talk about their differences in a respectful manner and maybe even learn from one another? He also said that the season of civility had mixed successes, but he said it was worth every minute of their effort. In Scripture, we have very clear injunction. One of the injunctions is, love your neighbor. The other one is, love your enemies. Loving your neighbor is folded into loving our enemies. The call to love our enemies there are really three ways that we can react to the people with whom we disagree. The first one is this, that you can punch, put all everybody in one basket and say that they're their enemies, that they are your enemies, to denounce anyone who does not agree with you as the enemy. The second one is to turn your back on the whole process. Turn your back on the whole process and go ahead and say to yourself, well, I'll just read the Bible and pray. Well, let me tell you, that's sentimentalism. And sentimentalism has no place in the Christian life. The invitation for all of us is how do we engage each other? How do we move beyond those two, those two options to the third option? And I suggest to you that perhaps 
the best way to fashion our politics is by a means of neighboring, building relationships with people we don't like or find scandalous in order to seek the welfare of the city, as the prophet Jeremiah wrote in his book. It will require some soul searching. Just as I turn to scripture during hard times, I also turn around to look at, uh, to see other people that have inspired me in the past. And one of the fo folks who I went to read was, of course, Martin Luther King, who preached a sermon at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in 1957, and it was called Love Your Enemies. And one of the things that he says in that particular, uh, in that particular sermon, he says that love is stronger than like, that love can trump and is stronger than all the hate in the world that love is what defines a Christian community and that we're all called to exercise, to exercise that ethic to the best of our abilities. And then he says, Jesus said, how is it that you see the splinter in your brother's eye but fail to see the plank in your own eye? I think what Martin Luther King was called for was a sense of empathy, a sense of understanding each other, of being able to understand where other people are while you also hold on to the convictions that you hold tightly. One of my favorite presidents, probably everybody's favorite president, is Abraham Lincoln. And both in the Team of Rivals book by Doris Kearns Goodwin and another book written by William Wolfe entitled Lincoln's Religion, both of them praised him for his sense of empathy, of understanding the pain in somebody else in order that you can move forward together. Some years ago, Alan Simpson, the former senator from the state of Wyoming, was a member of our congregation. And during that time, I was involved in a project with uh, the director of the National Church, a guy named Arlen Rothich, and we were working on how to uh, uh, redevelop congregations that were in trouble. And so we were working together, and one of the things that Arlen came up with was that we needed to identify in our congregations uh, bridge persons, is the language that he called it, bridge persons. So I went over to talk to Alan Simpson. I called him up, and I said, can I have a bit of your time? And sure enough, he was gracious enough to give me uh, time to talk to him. And I said, you know, you're a bridge builder, so tell me about the qualities of being a bridge builder. And the first thing he said was a sense of empathy to understand the other side while you hold on to the things that are important to you. And he lived it out. When he was retiring, I was invited over to his uh, farewell dinner at one of the hotels here in Washington. And I have that photograph in the wall in my house. And that photograph is a photograph of all the people who were gathered at the head table with him. And the folks who were gathered at the head table with him were Orrin Hatch, Teddy Kennedy, Bill Bradley, and I forget who else it was. And I remember talking to him about it, and he said, well, those are all the bridge builders in the Senate. And I thought to myself, now, you know, I don't pine away for the things of the past. You know that fully well. I said, a matter of fact, I can tell you that I don't pine away for the past because the good old days were good for some but not for all. And in the good old days, I would have never been the rector of St. John's Church. In the good old days, an immigrant to this country would have never, ever been the rector of this church. So I don't pine away for the old times, but perhaps I do pine away for some things about the old times. And that is that we do need to have bridge builders in our life. 
that we need to have people who have a sense of empathy above all else to understand the pain which each and every one of us experiences in our own hearts. And maybe, maybe, if we do some soul searching, we can become that person. Maybe, maybe, we can become the bridge builders of our society. I can't imagine our society like a phoenix that dies in a burst of flames but comes back perfectly out of the ashes. The image that I have, the imagination that I have, and instead of that, I, the, the, the image that I have is that of a salamander who may lose his limbs and retain scars, yet regrows the limbs, lives with the scars, and keeps going. And maybe that's the best image and the best hope for ourselves after this very, very toxic political season. It requires soul-searching in every one of us to develop a sense of empathy, to understand each other better, and to quit identifying everyone as the enemy whom we hate. Again, this week, when in trouble, I go to Scripture. When I want to understand hard times, I go to Martin Luther King. When I want to have just some different perspective on things, I go to Reinhold Niebuhr, my favorite theologian of all time. And so I went to Reinhold Niebuhr in his book, The Irony of American History. He writes in a paragraph something that is really a prayer, which I offer to you for your consideration about how we can live our lives together in this nation. This is how this paragraph goes in the form, I think, of a prayer. Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. No virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love which is forgiveness. So may it be for you, for me, and for our splintered nation. Amen.